Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with award-winning journalist David Epstein, who uh, last year gave a really well-received talk at Strata San Jose uh, based on his uh, best-selling book, The Sports Gene. So welcome to the David Data Show, David. Thank you for having me. So first off, I think we'll talk a little bit about your background. So I think you've always written somewhat on the intersection of science and sports, right? But actually even uh, sometimes in environmental issues. But yeah. uh, you started out as a science person before you yeah. were a journalist, correct? Yeah, I thought I was, uh, I, I was interested, always interested in science and I studied in college. I, I majored in um, you know, geological sciences and I minored in astronomy. Um, so I wasn't exactly on the path toward being a journalist, <laughs> That's not, to put it mildly. So when did you start thinking that uh, journalism was your uh, profession? Honestly, so I, I always liked writing. So I thought, um, you know, I'd be someone with a PhD who writes. You know, I'd grown up loving reading things by like, Carl Sagan and people like that. But I didn't really think through the path. And actually, I was a, a competitive runner at one point, And one of my training partners, um, who I write about in the book, actually dropped dead after a race. And this is a guy who was like possibly an Olympic level talent, you know, and, as a, and that happens as a young guy, no previous symptoms. And I got really curious in how that could happen. I was in geology grad school at the time. And uh, ultimately, I had his parents sign a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records. And I did that, learned that he had died of this uh, kind of a textbook case of this disease caused, called HCM that causes sudden heart failure. Uh, and that's caused by one single gene mutation. And it's often misdiagnosed in athletes. And it was at that moment I decided I can merge my interests in sports and science and do something that I think is important. So I want to write about this, not for people like me who are reading the Journal of Applied Physiology, but for a much broader audience. And, you know, so I targeted Sports Illustrated and it took me a couple of years to pull that off. But that was indeed my first uh, cover story at Sports Illustrated was sudden cardiac death in athletes. And then I, then I kind of became their sports science writer. Wow. So how can you, how can you just say, okay, I, I want to be a writer and I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated? Yeah, well, it took a, so ignorance helped at first, very much. So I took some journalism classes and I basically wrote, you know, as a project, wrote what I wanted to write about sudden cardiac death with the help of some professors and then asked one of them who had used to work at Sports Illustrated, you know, can I, can you give me a name, someone I can pitch there? And so I just send them in the whole thing, right? Not knowing that a place like Sports Illustrated doesn't take like any unsolicited freelance. And so, but they liked it. It landed on the desk of a guy named Richard Demack who had dropped out of med school to be a journalist. So like the one guy whose desk it could have landed on who would have actually read it. And he did. And he said, you know, we don't take unsolicited freelance and you have no experience, but I, we like this and just keep in touch and let us know what you do as you learn to be a journalist, basically. And so over the course of like the next two and a half years, like every time I did something I thought was worthwhile, I kept, uh, kept banging on his door and, you know, two and a half years down the road, um, Someone went on maternity leave and he said, hey, if you want to come for a six-month temp fact-checking job, you can do that. So I left a full-time job to do that and, uh, you know, got caught a couple lucky breaks and, and, and caught on. So you were, you, it sounds like early on you were uh, already targeting what you're writing about now, which is uh, the science of sport. That, that's right. I mean, and, and, you know, honestly, so I targeted that and then I... I got interested in doing some investigative stuff, you know, some doping stuff, some dietary supplement industry investigations, things like that. And I got the book project to write about genetics and answer all these kind of sports science questions that I myself had had for years. And, and actually, when I finished that, I was a little bit of a loss of like, well, 
well, what now? You know, because I had for the entire time I'd been in journalism, I'd had these very concrete things that I wanted to work toward. And so I'm kind of now for the first time ever in my career saying like, well, what's my what's my big project? You know, so I'm starting to think about that now for the first time since I've been in journalism. So in a way, I guess the the doping stuff you wrote about at SI uh, was probably not that far removed from what you were interested in, right? So performance. That's right. Yeah, performance. And I also found the the kind of medical and science uh, aspects of the doping and its its effects and how it's done as well as the anti-doping science to be very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, those things, they get really, uh, like the Court of Arbitration for Sport has what I think are these incredibly fascinating hearings now where someone fails a drug test and tries to argue on statistical grounds that they didn't actually fail. And uh, so I, I kind of got interested in that aspect of it too. So as an athlete, as a uh, runner in college, you were already aware of performance enhancing drugs and, and just yeah. training in general and sports science. Uh, yeah, yeah. So did you actually take courses? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I took a lot of science courses. So I took, you know, basic sciences all around, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, things like that. But I wasn't taking physiology, although I was interested in my own training. And so I was often using my, you know, li- library login instead of reading uh, you know, geosciences journals. I was reading the Journal of Applied Physiology and the British Journal of Sports Medicine and things like that. And so I was uh, using <laughs> a lot of. I didn't even think of like sports science as a as a, a full time discipline. I just didn't know. I just didn't know. But I did find myself reading physiology a lot when I was supposed to be doing other stuff. Well, you know, it's one thing to be reading about these things, but some of the people you wrote about in SI were like big names, right? Like Alex Rodriguez, Lance Armstrong. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think. Obviously, uh, you were under SI, so any lawsuits they would take care of. But I think that's probably still scary to take on big, such big personalities. For sure. And you really don't want to be in a lawsuit. I remember I had to meet, spend a lot of time with our lawyers at SI. And they'd say, you know, you're, you're confident in this now. You know, you're saying we're ready to go with this. And let me just, you know, put you in the mindset of, of being in a courtroom, being deposed, you know, and saying... I won't reveal my sources or whatever. So there are a lot of there are a lot of steps you have to go through, you know, because if you so you learned you, you learned on the job. You weren't you, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. You didn't. I mean, I had some you, good. You, you, you didn't go up the ranks of investigative journalism, right? That's that's correct. And I mean, I guess I always had kind of a my first job because it was the only one I could get in journalism was as the guy the overnight crime reporter at the New York Daily News. So I started at midnight and went to the morning. So I started learning certain kinds of investigative skills doing that, and I could get that was the only job I could get. So that's what I was doing, and then. At Sports Illustrated, I got paired up, like for the Alex Rodriguez stuff, I got um, paired up with a woman named Selena Roberts, who was, a, who was already a very experienced investigative reporter. So I had a great opportunity to kind of um, learn from her, too. So then uh, you wrote your book, The Sports Gene, which, um, you know, I mean, if you, if you guys haven't, uh, if the listeners haven't uh, read it, I strongly encourage you. It's one of the best book about sports, actually. Uh, not just uh, sports science, but just sports in general uh, out there. But, I mean, I look at the outline of, or the table of contents of this book. It seems like, uh, as you described, this is probably something, even just a table of contents, something you had in the back of your mind for a long time. Yeah, Because I mean, it's so comprehensive, David. I, I had to cut two chapters, too, because it was too long. But um, the, uh, it's, the, the, I guess, like, the dirty little secret of this book is it's like, whatever... 16 or 17 of my own deepest questions about athleticism that came out of my own competing, uh, my own uh, watching sports, my own interviewing athletes that I just, you know, had an opportunity to, to go as 
find out as far as science could take us in answering some of those questions and then try to make it seem coherent enough like a book. And so it really was very much, I didn't expect anyone to actually read it. You know, I thought my, my mother was going to buy like a dozen copies and invite me to her book club and then I'd go on with my life. Because um, I was like, well, these are just my questions. Maybe a lot of people aren't interested in these. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised. Well, you, in, in a way, you covered kind of all the uh, basic athletic skills, right? So you talk about speed, the 100-meter yeah. dash, the yeah. endurance, long-distance running, the high jump, yeah, right? So, and, then, yeah. and then the team sports, right? So, so yeah. fundamentally, uh, what did you learn writing the sports gene in terms of this whole uh, nature versus nurture? Yeah, well, I'd say, you know, broadly, some of the things that I completely assumed were totally genetic, like the ability to react fast enough to hit a 100-mile-per-hour baseball turn out to be essentially completely learned. And other things that I thought would you know, have no aspect of genetics, be totally voluntary acts of will, like the compulsive drive to train, turn out to have really important genetic components that we've studied. And so, so much of you know, my kind of <laughs> common wisdom or received wisdom for sports was, was wrong. And the way that genetics interacts with skill building uh, was surprised to me that, that one of the most important findings in sports genetics is that your ability to improve with respect to a certain training program is mediated by your genes. So it's really important to find the kind of training program that's, that's best tailored to your physiology. You know? and it, it, <laughs> boy, looking back on that book, it makes me, when I watch sports now and you hear commentators, like they mention talent in one way or another every game. And so they sort of form the public's opinion of talent. And boy, they have not read one word of you know, a century's worth of research on talent. Right, right, right. So in, in many ways, I guess, if you think of the athletic competition as the output variable, you, among your input variables are your genes, mm -hmm. but then there's also the way you train, yeah. right, yeah. So, and what you eat, and, and all and of those things. So, so each sport, I guess, is different, right? So in terms of the relative weighting and importance of each of these things. Definitely, definitely. And, and, and some of that has to do not even just with genes and training, but with how competitive the sport is globally. You know, like you'll see some sports when they're kind of ramping up, some countries or teams will figure out a certain physiological advantage that they can just plug someone in and make them like a world champion almost right away. But in sports that are more developed competitively, that, that, that doesn't really happen. But to, you know, to go to your kind of analogy about the input and output variables, it's interesting because as you know, I describe some of the body and computer terms early in the book when I'm talking about learning pattern recognition. And one of the things that really interested me is that there are certain aspects, you know, these, the skills it takes for team sports, these perceptual skills, nobody's born with those. So those are completely software to use the computer analogy. But it turns out that once the software is downloaded, it's like a computer. While your hardware doesn't do anything alone without software, once you've got the software, the hardware actually makes a lot of a difference to how good of an operating machine you have. But it can be, it can be obscured when people don't study it correctly, which is you know, why I took on some of the 10,000-hour stuff. Right, 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 right. But the hardware matters, right? Yeah, it does. It does, but sometimes you can't see how it matters until you've got the right software in place. So I think it's one of the best things that sports and exercise science can give us is how to individualize and optimize each person's sort of learning plan to... Uh, best capitalize on their hardware because they so, can't they don't know what it is at first so for example um so you had an example in your book or i think i forget which one shot put was it shot put could be where uh you talk about you know there's only a few variables that you can tweak yeah and, and uh 
and some people have figured out what those variables are and they, it, yeah. they basically uh, kind of outro maybe even the more talented people, right? That's right. And even the, this was part of Great Britain's when they were awarded the Olympics, they did this, started this program. They decided, you know, science was going to be part of their competitive advantage. And they did this thing they called the determinants of performance program, where they just tried to figure out, boil down, to, you know, as few factors and variables as possible to um, determine what was what was causing outcomes and and the some of the sports were incredibly simple like shot put release height release velocity and release angle uh, that's it that determines how far it goes and people usually train you know the velocity it's like the form basically and so what is there, someone, a lot, is there a lot of motion capture technology being used yeah for sure yeah there's a lot of motion capture um, and what what they figured out was that while everyone's training you know, velocity and form, it turns out that angle is incredibly important. You can lose on the other two variables and win with just a fraction better angle, and it's also the one that's easiest to change. And so they, they really drilled down and I think, you know, kind of put aside the common wisdom and found the variable, not just variable that mattered, but which one was most easily changeable. And they, uh, they did quite well with that. And then they applied it to some other sports. So, but uh, as with anything else, Right? So just like the stock market, once that knowledge is out, then everyone is going to try to use it, right? That's right. There's, there's a really funny example of that happening, which is um, in a sport called skeleton, which is one of those new sports where any innovation would have a huge, uh, huge impact. It's a winter sport where people like slide face first down an icy track. And these, these two guys just goofing around. Everyone used to use two hands on the sled, and then you run with it and you jump on it. And this Canadian coach who was, who was worried that the Americans had like all this better equipment that were going to, sorry, a British coach, were going to destroy his team, um, told them like, you guys just go find, figure out something new, try anything, play around. And these guys basically invent the one-hand start. You know, they, they've been training a certain way for several years. He gives them two hours to say like, just go be creative, you know, whatever, do something stupid. They come back asking him, hey, is it, is, is it within the rules to do it one-handed? And he looks, it's not against the rules. They keep it secret, and then they break it out, and they're, like, breaking the start world records, like, left and right, but then everybody starts using it right away. So, like, literally overnight, you know, transforms what everyone does in oh, the sport. Right, 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 right. By the way, in your book, the, one of the examples that uh, really stands out is uh, the one you give on the high jump, right? So Yeah. Where, basically, you, you have an example of someone who has flawless technique going up against someone with, I guess, the right genes. Yeah. And, yes. And there, it seems like uh, the right genes overcame <laughs> flawless technique. Yeah, I mean, so that was the case with the what I called the tale of two high jumpers. We have this one guy, this Swedish guy, who's completely obsessed, gives up everything else in his life. Right? He didn't. He didn't date while he was doing a high jump because he said he'd be like cheating on his girlfriend because high jump was his girlfriend. You know, and he's he has he has a kid now actually named now he's he's retired. He has a kid named Mel Melwin, which is not a common Swedish name, but his wife liked the name Melvin and he wanted Win somewhere in the kid's <laughs> name. Right, so this is a competitive guy and he put twenty years he improved one centimeter a year for twenty straight years at high jump through his training, became Olympic champion. He's about five foot ten, he cleared a bar nearly eight feet. And you know, in at the world championships he comes up against a guy who uh was talking trash at lunchtime at college and a guy bet him he couldn't jump over a certain height. And he, he goes over it easily, goes over seven feet, you know, wearing his sneakers. And after eight months of training, he's a, he's a pro and he's at the world championships. And he beats the guy with 20 years because he happens to have a really long Achilles tendon. You know, not knowing what he was doing, not having any form. Uh, so it was really a pretty, pretty startling thing. The announcers, you could see on YouTube, they don't even really know who he is when he shows up at the world championships. But uh, 
I mean, presumably, if you put that, take that guy and give him the proper technique, he, his potential is uh, sky high, right? So. See, that's a funny thing because in that jump, when he won the world championships on eight months of training, he, he, his form was so bad. The, the reason the curl over the bar works is because your center of mass is kind of in the middle of the donut and it passes below the bar while you pass over if you do it right so you don't have to jump as high. And Donald Thomas, the guy who had no training, he recorded the highest center of mass jump ever but didn't set the world record because his form was so bad. Now he's been a pro for like eight years. He just competed this weekend at the Pan Am Games and got third. He has never improved on that jump that what he did eight months in so he, he like contradicts the 10,000 hour rule from every direction right. he entered at the top and has stagnated or even in some cases gotten a little bit a little bit worse over eight years of now being a pro so do you think that so is he working with the right coaches who have deconstructed and found the right variables for him to tweak and you know what i think some of the problem is with him is that they saw how good he was and started training him as if he was someone that good and then he suffered a lot of injuries because he wasn't someone that good. He happened to be, you know, have this luck of this incredible talent, but he didn't, he, he didn't understand the kind of training, the kind of taking care of your body, you know, obviously the form. And so I think they needed, even though he could jump, you know, seven foot eight, they needed to train him as if he were a freshman in high school learning this sport. And so I think he suffered with a lot of injury problems because of that. But it's hard to blame any coaches for that because nobody, you know, it's such a rare, nobody's ever deals with that situation twice. Right, right, right. So in, in this particular sport, people found out that the Achilles tendon is, is uh, very helpful. And I think throughout your book, you point out um, many similar things in different sports. So, f for example, in the NBA, you point out wingspan. People yeah. are obsessed about wingspan, right? Yeah, that was, that was funny too because so the – like your and my wingspan are probably about the same as our height. 1.01 to 1 is actually average. So my, mine is the same as my height, which means I'm slightly, uh, slightly smaller and or slightly less long than than uh, normal. But the average NBA player is six foot six and a half with seven foot long arms. So the average NBA player actually meets the diagnostic criteria for Marfan syndrome, this disease that causes elongation of the limbs. And and. and, and uh, to be fair, uh, that's one of the things they measure during the draft. That's right, they do. That's okay. because it can make people prone to, to sudden death, so they do, in fact, measure that. And, and maybe the best female volleyball player in American history had Marfan syndrome, was tall and elongated, and actually did, did die on the court. Um, and so, yeah, they, they measure that, and, but they also, it also turns out to be useful for predicting certain statistics. Not even just arm length overall, but ratio. And when I was doing some analytics on this, I noticed that the Houston Rockets were drafting, you know, an inordinate number of the guys with high ratios. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that their general manager, Daryl Morey, is like the founder of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference and kind of the money ball guy of basketball. And I went to him and said, hey, you know, I noticed this. Um, you're, you're picking up these guys who seem to be short, but they have these long arm spans. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be able to talk to you about that. <laughs> okay, I'll yeah. take that as a, yeah. <laughs> as a yes. So do you think in... Uh, in many sports that you've studied, there there's such a, a key physical property, just like the Achilles tendon and wingspan, right? So I think for, how about for sprinting? Yeah, for sprinting, I mean, one of the things. So I think there's it's all you know it's always complicated. The more complicated, the more complex the sport. But sprinting, uh, the muscle fiber type is incredibly important. So coarsely speaking, I mean, it's it's too simplified. But you have 
sort of two types of muscle, two major types of muscle fibers, uh, type one or slow twitch and type two or fast twitch. And they use, they have different metabolic properties. So the type one are really endurance. They don't tire, but they require a lot of oxygen to make energy. The type two, you know, you don't even need, you know, like you don't really, like Usain Bolt doesn't need lungs while he's doing what he's doing. He only needs them after the race to recover. Um, and those muscle fibers can contract much more rapidly. Uh, and so you can put more force into the ground in a, in a smaller, shorter amount of time. And that is absolutely what limits sprinting speed. So like you might think Usain Bolt moves his legs fast, but he actually repositions his legs like at the same rate as your grandmother when she's running as fast as she can, or, you know, maybe your mother, if your grandmother's a little older, but the sprinters don't win by, by moving their legs through the air faster. They win by putting five times their body weight into the ground as fast as humanly possible, you know, 0.08 seconds or something. Wow. And you, so literally sprinting is limited by the contractile speed of the muscle fibers. And that's, so you need a lot of those fast twitch muscle fibers. So all, all the, all the top flight sprinters are off the charts in, in, in this area. But uh, do you think that at some point people will just get pre-screened and say, Hey, let's measure, let's measure you along this dimension. And, oh yeah, you're not good for sprinting. Yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, when I saw, um, well for sprinting, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a very easy physiological tool for sprinting is a stopwatch. So there's a lot of longitudinal data with tens of thousands of people who are tracked longitudinally that show that uh, whether you like it or not, fast, slow kids do not become fast adults. So just as there is for sort of height charts, um, speed is slightly predictable in, no, in a broad the, the, sense. I, I thought for some reason you had this slide where you showed uh, for diving in China. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, right. you, they measure certain dimensions. Oh, no, you're not good for diving. Go to gymnastics. That's right, right. And diving, the one is they have like rows of kids. I was able to see some of their, their screening video. And they're standing with their arms up. And if their elbow joints don't basically fold in and meet above their head, then the idea is that they'll make too big a splash when they knife into the water. So someone's just going down the row going like, you know, you, 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 and you. Like, you're not, you can't make small enough splash, so go over to gymnastics. So it's, they have this, you know, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, God, you know, are they going to be like locked in padded rooms or whatever? But no, it's like they've they found something that matters physiologically. And so they use that. But after that, they don't go crazy. I mean, the Chinese diving team has loads of fun. Like they do all kinds of like land-based athleticism, all kinds of crazy dives that you'd never see in competition. And the, and the training kids like train next to the gold medalists. You know? so it's, and Chinese diving, like that, that's the greatest dynasty in the history of right. sports. It makes like the Roman Empire look slipshod. You know, it's like right. just amazing. Hey, so for endurance sport, uh, why not just measure someone's VO2 max and say, hey, you're not good for, for the triathlon or marathon? Yeah, the thing about VO2 max is it's a really good predictor of endurance for normal people. But as you move up, um, you end up with like a serious restriction of range where there's not very much variability in VO2 max among elite competitors. And so it's really, it becomes very unpredictive at the top and a bunch of other stuff does. So if you wanted to measure someone to say, you know, hey, you have, you know, you, you could be like a college level athlete, that, that would be useful. But above that, it's not. And the other problem is, you know, as I wrote about myself in the book, is that the correlation, the VO2 max correlation between baseline and ability to improve with a given training plan is zero. So right. sometimes you have people who are, who look like they suck, like me, right? As I right. can't remember if I put up the slide of my, my pulmonologist report saying I might have early stage emphysema when oh, I was yeah, 20. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. a funny slide, yeah. And, and that was a couple of years before I, you know, participated in the U.S. national championships. <laughs> um, and so some people are highly, highly trainable, even if they have a low baseline. So it's, it can be a little tricky if you're measuring everyone 
you know, untrained. But if you're measuring some people, on, some people have 50% higher VO2 max than normal, even when they're untrained. So those are good people to take a risk on. So when it comes to team sports and analytics, one of the things that I don't know, maybe it's just me I've noticed is that uh, as analytics become more prevalent, and maybe this is just my imagination too, David, uh, do teams start playing alike? Like, for example, in the NBA, right? So I, I, I stopped watching the NBA a few years ago. This year I peaked at the playoffs and I noticed everyone was shorting, uh, was uh, shooting a lot of corner trees. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it, it, it seems like uh, that's all based on analytics, right? So, and obviously the bread and butter has always been and will remain the pick and roll, the high pick and roll until people figure out how to defend it, right? So, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the corner three because that was like, the lowest hanging fruit basketball analytics finding was that you know any any halfway decent shooter if they have an open look at the corner three the makes will yeah will, yeah that's you know, why I think uh, so, that's yeah. why I think the game has put a premium on these people who can drive and kick it out to the corner right yeah yeah so I mean that's in in instances like that you're absolutely right I mean and you can see those things. Um, you know, in baseball, it's like you can look at the attempted stolen bases go way down because there are certain situations where people just don't even try anymore to steal bases because you know even if it's even if they have a better chance of making it than not, the chance of getting caught is way worse. Is you know the, the 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 repercussions of getting caught are way worse. So in some ways, there are uh, these aspects of people kind of conforming to certain ways of play. At the same time, I, I kind of think people conform to certain ways of play in the past anyway, and just based on kind of intuition. And so I think this is sort of a neat thing to see as, you know, someone comes up with something and then everyone copies it and then someone comes up with something else. And so I think it's cool to see. Right, 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 right. Um, so the other thing that I, I've has caught my eye recently, so I'm a big, uh, Tour de France mm -hmm. fan have always been, um, so this year, I've noticed in the Tour de France, a group of people who are using data and pattern recognition to, let's say, highlight suspicious performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of people who tweet about this, at Science of Sport and at Fistina Boy, uh, are the pioneers in this, uh, yeah. in this area. So basically, they're calculating power output. And right. what's interesting to me is that the teams have... In a, we're initially labeling them as doing pseudoscience. And mm -hmm. then this year, uh, there was a leak of, of data. And uh, using that data, they were able to prove that actually they're not doing pseudoscience. In fact, their measurements were not just estimates. They were exact, right? Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, yep. So, yeah, so the power output basically, so the, what they're doing is they're looking at data from previous eras so particularly eras where there was known to be doping right. in, co in comparing it to what's happening now. And uh, I think at this point, it's fair to say that it's still very early on. And uh, without the teams actually sharing data, uh, it's, uh, what we have are just basically uh, very, very small samples. Right, yeah. right. And, and, and I think, you know, like you said, Science of Sport, who I know very well, Ross Tucker's, he, he doesn't he doesn't claim um, that, that you can have dispositive evidence just from power data uh, about whether someone's doping or not. But I think he's, you know, like you said, teams were calling it pseudoscience. And then when data was leaked, it turns out that their measurements were very accurate. So I think it, he got upset about some of the transparency. And, you know, we know, like you said, in those past eras of doping, you know, like in the Lance Armstrong era, and you look at what happens when sort of the EPO test comes in and suddenly power outputs plummet, right? 
plummet. And then suddenly, you know, this year in some cases they look like they're back to where they were after that. And it's not like guys had stopped training hard. They, they stopped taking EPO. So it's, I think there's, you know, this, that sport for sure has earned earned the suspicion it gets. Yeah, I think we have to be careful because the bicycles are improving, you know, the weather changes. Like there are a lot of variables, um, but with the history of the sport, you know, and the fact that they were calling pseudoscience measurements that turned out to be um, quite accurate, you know, it's, it's uh, they, I think if they're complaining about people being gadflies, that's crazy. No, but to me, what's interesting is just the determination of the fans, right? To, to, yeah. to, to be part of, be part of making the sport clean in terms of, okay, so we don't have access to the actual doping tests. We think this looks too fast. Yeah. Uh, what do we have? Well, then they just do these calculations, which turned out to be quite accurate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, too, which sports uh, the fans or you know, enthusiasts engage in that way. Right? Like the NFL, it's like, whatever, some guy failed a test. He's going to issue his press release saying that he was, didn't declare his ADHD medication, even though that's usually preposterous. Um, and nobody says like a, a second thing. And then there's like track and field where 10 years later, someone is still disgraced sprinter, you know, so-and-so. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I don't know if it's the sport itself or the, or the fans that particular sports draw that, that causes that, but I think it's some of both actually. And I think because, uh, uh, the doping era in cycling is fairly recent, yeah. there's enough tape and, but unfortunately, this type of thing that they're doing actually requires almost logs from the teams. Yeah. So those logs from the previous area eras may not exist, but at least they, they've proven that they can estimate it right. quite well, right. yeah, which is uh, interesting. So it's basically really uh, data science applied to sport. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, mean, I mean, by the fans, but also yeah. by, I think in this case, actually, your friend is a is a sports scientist, so it's it's not like he's a casual fan either, right? No, but I think there, there's you're seeing. I mean, I think it's the Sacramento Kings, you know, who are one of their owners is Vec Randiv, who kind of I think digitized Wall Street in the '80s, and he, uh, you know, I think he's. I'm pretty sure he wanted to allow sort of fans to do analytics that might even go up like on the jumbotron during a game you know and also make a call for fans to if they find anything in their analytics you know let the team know and so i think there's a lot of potential for a different kind of engagement um, in sports which i think would be awesome but that means that means the owners will have to release data yeah and now you know i think in i think that's unlikely in the near term but i do think they'll get more comfortable with some of this stuff over time and if the league says look this is you know, this is something that's going to increase revenue for everybody. Then, yeah, I think I think they they sacrifice competitive advantage at various times for revenue increases all over the league. You know, in cycling, I don't understand the sport uh, well enough, I guess, but uh, it seems to me you can just release the data to a uh, to a gov- governing body and have them calculate the power output. I think the teams are saying we can't release the data because that's our secret sauce. That's like. An NFL team releasing their playbook. Yeah, except I think a lot of it isn't like that. You know, I mean, some of I can see that. You know, why give anyone else a chance to 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 look at your data? But it doesn't seem the same way. A, a competitive advantage to me the same way. And as far as releasing it to the governing body, I mean, cycling's governing body was was a huge part of the problem. Right, but right. I mean, I don't know. What do, what do you think? Because I, I don't. I can see why they'd want to be proprietary about things. But to me, it doesn't seem the same as releasing the playbook. Yeah. What highlighted uh, what? To me, what this year highlighted was, one, the biological passport needs to be supplemented by this kind yeah. of train, uh, logs from the actual training and uh, races. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, biological passport, which of course is the, the like latitudinal tracking of blood parameters for athletes so that you don't have to see a certain drug. You just see these abnormal fluctuations. I mean, there's a lot of room to dope within that because 
you know, you're not testing directly for a drug. So you're talking about basically workplace drug testing that isn't going to find the actual drug or its metabolites. So they have a really, really conservative boundary for what constitutes, uh, you know, an, an, an abnormal test. So you have to be in a, like, you know, the 99-something percentile of abnormal for the test really to, to result in a sanction. So you can do microdoses. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the current scourge. I think biological passport, if, it, if something looks fishy, you know, they can target you with certain kinds of more sensitive and more expensive testing. So maybe that's useful. And I do think the biological passport limits, you know, as we get more and more data, will will close in right. um, and make it more difficult. But yeah, at this point, you know, you can absolutely do do microdosing if you do it yeah. right and, and don't get really unlucky. So the thing about the, the power output and the training logs, as your friend Ross Tucker has pointed out, um, it's... It, provides clues, but if that's the only piece of evidence you have, you would never uh, stand a chance in, in a courtroom, right? So at that's the end right. of the day, you still need uh, witnesses and journalists to uncover what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree, not just because it's self-serving, but even, again, no matter how good that performance data is, too, you've got, there's other variables from technology to, to conditions that play a part. And so, yeah, I think you, you, you need something else. Yeah, which brings me to what you've been doing lately, which is investigative journalism in this particular area around uh, what the people in the track and field world have uh, know to be the uh, Oregon Project, right? So this is a, this is a team inside Nike um, run by one of the uh, most famous track and field coaches in the world, Alberto Salazar. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think you you just published a piece. Was it last month? Uh, yep. It and was really mostly relying on uh, on uh, witnesses from alumni of the Oregon Project. Yeah, yeah. Both both staff and athletes, kind of detailing. I mean, you know, there was a lot of talk about the Oregon Project because uh, the idea is, you know, it's a Nike funded project to sort of use science to to get American distance running um, back up with the East Africans, uh, and. And by the way, just just on that note, how well has it done in that regard? The Nike Oregon Project. I mean, it's it's so they took one British runner. Everyone else has been American, yeah. and the the British runner and then the top American runner for the Oregon Project got the gold and silver medal in the ten thousand meters at the last Olympics. The British athlete also won the five thousand meters. They've set a whole load of American records. Um, I mean, it's it's done really really well. There have been athletes who went there who never got better, but. But Galen Rupp, who's sort of the star of the project for the Americans, and Mo Farah, the one foreigner, the Brit, is, I mean, Mo Farah is like a million Twitter follower plus guy in the UK. He's, he's an A-list athlete, which is difficult to do as a, as a runner, as a distance runner. So in, in the piece you wrote, it was mostly a testimony from former members of the Oregon Project, former coaches as well. But do you think that, uh, let's, so you have the biological test, but is there the equivalent of these training logs for track that if you had access to them? Yeah, well, I mean, in fact, we, one of the sources gave us, um, you know, copies of, a, or, or photographs of a document from the Nike lab that he came across uh, that pertains to Galen Rupp, and it's tracking his coming and going from altitude and his race performances and his training, and and one of the things we highlighted there was there's there's also notations about um, you know, his medical care, and it says, uh, one point says, presently on prednisone and testosterone medication. Um, you know, prednisone being corticosteroid, they said he was taking for, uh, for asthma, which he does have, um, and testosterone medication. You know, we were kind of surprised to see that on an athlete's document from the Nike lab, and 
Salazar and, and Galen Rupp claimed that that was a mistaken notation referring to an over-the-counter supplement, um, you know, but that's, that was unusual. So that, that kind of tracking certainly uh, became interesting. We published a photo of that, of that document. You know, it would be interesting to just do a quick comparison of the general population and mm -hmm. track and field athletes and see what the likelihood is of uh, thyroid and asthma medication. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Oregon Project, why people in the running community first started sort of gossiping about the Oregon Project, not just because the results were good, but because you were having, you know, people who were national college champions in endurance sports, um, and suddenly they're, you know, a, a, a conspicuous number of them are on thyroid hormone and inhalers in their 20s, and all with this one group. Uh, and so that was that was where it first started. And and even though that's not, you know, what we think of as as doping, it's there's this whole question of using medicine in a way that's not intended, basically, like y y exploiting loopholes that are there for because athletes have to be able to get medical care and, and using those for performance reasons. And uh, I I think was it in your piece or somewhere else I read that actually there's a way for you to uh, easily test in a way that you would be prescribed asthma medication. Yeah. So, and there there are a number of ways. I mean, when the what the what the Oregon Project runners would be told to do was to do this like really hard workout. Um, you know, sometimes maybe in high pollen season, and then run up the stairs to the doctor's office and and take the test. You know, in the hope that they perform less well and get prescribed. Uh, so, yeah, a, a number of them described. But doing at this that. point, it's just uh, these medications are they a science or pseudoscience in terms of do they actually. Uh, Let's just say uh, you're actually taking them to enhance your performance. Maybe you're just deluding yourself. Yeah, I think it's 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 hard to say. I think absolutely there's some of the various like supplements and various things that were being done. Um, you know, use of certain prescription painkillers in the Oregon Project that were not performance enhancing, but it was sort of a like, well, you know, if we don't think the downside's too bad, let's you know let, let's give it a try. And so I think some of the stuff was probably a nothing. With the inhalers, it's sort of hard to tell. There's no there's no evidence that in albuterol inhalers, for example, um, which are the sort of most basic kind, improve aerobic performance, but there's some evidence that they acutely improve muscle performance. So like maybe you'd want to take it before you're doing your lifting and things like that. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, they're not really studied for use in these ways. So there's a kind of quite a bit of an unknown component. So is there a public uh, data set which tells you which, which athletes are on which medication? But no, that's probably private information for one thing. So. Yeah, it's called the therapeutic use exemption. So there's this system set up where if an athlete needs a drug that they otherwise shouldn't be taking, um, they can apply for a therapeutic use exemption to say, you know, well, I might test positive here, but I have this exemption that was cleared while I'm taking it. But yeah, it's not. It's not a, but for uh, someone like you who wants to write a story, let's say, let's look at the number of people who are on this. That's not easy for you to. Correct. Yeah, Correct. yeah, yeah, yeah. So same thing, for example, what about... There's also this, I think you wrote it in one of your pieces, something about IV uh, infusion during races. So is that, is that data available somewhere? Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not available. Um, nope, it's not. So then uh, uh, how, so how do people find out that uh, something like that happens? It's just kind of... Uh, you have to get someone who's not supposed to tell you or show you a document to talk to you or show you a document that you're not supposed to see. No, but I mean, so so uh, they get they get permission to do it. So, so yeah. the uh, uh, authorities. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the um, the authorities do know, right? They would they would ask like a team doctor who can sort of you know go through a process that says, okay, this is a legitimate 
IV that this person needs, which is very, very rare. Very rarely are IVs granted. One, uh, you know, one reason that is is because it turned out that Lance Armstrong and his teammates were using IVs to dilute their their blood to pass blood tests, to right. pass drug tests, basically, and so that that led to a, a major crackdown on IVs. So the the authorities actually have the data of all the PUEs. They do. Yep. So they can uh, they can publish just overall statistics without identifying anyone. Yep. Yep. And uh, I mean, I would suspect that probably those numbers are going to be surprising to a lot of people, right? The number of people on with TUEs. Probably, and I bet there are a lot of athletes who you know don't who don't get the TUEs and use stuff that they should have a TUE for. Also, I mean, that, that's kind of what NFL players always claim that that they don't have an official TUE system, but that they whenever they fail a drug test, they say they failed for Adderall. And, or someone you know, they, uh, someone uh, rubbed something on me without me knowing. Oh yeah, that's Whatever. a whole that's a whole other one. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, the creativity of some of the explanations is is really amazing. You know, we had like, I think Tyler Hamilton at one point claimed he had a disappearing twin in the womb who sort of leaked DNA over to his side, and that made his <laughs> some of his blood profiles unusual. Or Dennis Mitchell, the coach and American sprinter, who's who's still an American uh, national coach. I think he claimed. Uh, too much beer and sex raised his testosterone levels unusually, and so it's so there's I, a lot of creative stuff. I suspect there's a segment of the listeners of this podcast who are, are who are saying, "Well, the problem is uh, all these testing. Why not just let a free for all? Let everyone do whatever they want." Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and I would say some sports that almost is the attitude. I think like some sports have uh, sort of. Um, you know, testing a facade of a testing program, but it's not really that strict. So they, but they know there's more going on, so they sort of are allowing it. Cycling certainly was allowing it before, and I think, uh, you know, I don't think they would have changed if they didn't have to. But it was, uh, I think, David Walsh, a journalist, and some other journalists started embarrassing them, and so then they did it for uh, PR reasons to start testing, and then everything blew up, and the fans kind of spoke. I don't think they, they did it out no, of goodness so, of But heart. Uh, I guess the question is, will the fans appreciate a sport where there's no testing and a free-for-all? It's I don't, tra- track. Track, I mean. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think that's like the WWE, right? That's like more theater and less sport. And I think, partic- I mean, in the track was the only sport I've ever reported on where the athletes, instead of saying like, oh, I don't think it's a big problem in our sport, we're saying like, it's a problem, go get them, you know? They really, they've hit some kind of boiling point where they, they really want people to be, uh, to be out. You know, and some of the athletes started posting on Twitter their therapeutic use exemptions. Um, so, no, I don't think it would be tolerated. You know, when I think of, think of the doping, I, I think, because I think of this, think about this a lot, like the ethical questions and whether we should even police it. And there's a philosopher I love named Bernard Suits who um, wrote a book where he tries to come up with like a single thematic definition of all sports and games and he comes up with the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles and to me I think <laughs> it takes something away from sort of the core value of sports if you're circumventing those obstacles you voluntarily accepted and actually for for uh, for track if we assume that there's not going to be any doping at all actually uh, the fact that doping happened in the past has hurt the sport is hurting the sport even now right because you have yeah. all these records that are suspicious, that are hard to break, and so pe- so fans are kind of somewhat discouraged by the current generation of athletes. Yeah, particularly the women's records. So, you know, people used to say, oh, women are going to catch up on men when they have more opportunity, but actually men are pulling away now. Uh, the gap is widening, and I think it's partly because a lot of the women's records are stuck. Because steroids, which are just testosterone analogs, have a much greater effect in women than they do in men. 
And so we know in the past there was this era of mega doping. You know, all these documents have now come out related to East Germany. We know this is a very systematic, enormous amount of doping. And so tons of women's records are stuck. And nobody gets even close to them most of the time, you know, in the 80s. And, and so it's, that's a, it's a bummer. Right, right. And uh, there's no way to actually rewrite the record books, right? So, I yeah, mean, no, I mean, you know, one you of the things actually them. I found out, David, uh, in watching that documentary about Ben Johnson, mm -hmm. um, that some of the uh, specimen, the blood, they keep it around for years. So as testing gets better, you might be able to go back and retest. Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, there were, I think, the, I think the first time they officially kind of decided they were going to hold blood samples for eight years or urine samples was around the time of the Athens Olympics, I think, in 2004. And so that was about to expire right before the London Olympics in 2012. And so hurriedly they started testing, doing some back testing before the, that kind of statute of limitations, I suppose, just uh, expired. And they ended up having to reaward uh, two gold medals. Oh really? Yeah. But so there's uh, an American American shot putter who won his gold. He got his gold medal eight years after the Olympics. But even eight years is why stop there? If the science gets better at the testing. It's better. a good question. I, you know, I my my guess is probably so. The anti-doping world has like a reputation that kind of far exceeds its uh, size, and and it's probably an issue of the labs and storage costs because oh, right. right right now even. There are the testosterone test that's usually used for labs is not the best one. There's a much better one that can look specifically for synthetic testosterone, not just high levels. So it's a better test. And so you can catch people even if their levels weren't uh, suspiciously elevated. In fact, Justin Gatlin didn't his, – his level wasn't elevated enough to cause a positive, but he got targeted or he got tested with this other carbon isotope ratio test. And the reason that's not used all the time is because it's more labor-intensive and expensive. And one thing I think I've, I learned this somewhat from either one of your interviews or one of your, your pieces is that uh, even testing itself, it really depends on where you live. I mean, if you live in the U.S., you're subject, you might be subject to USADA, which is really very rigorous. But in yeah. other countries, maybe it's less rigorous. That's right. No, I mean, it's, it's for sure. Um, you know, it's, and it's getting better. UK anti-doping, like whenever a country gets the Olympics, they really bone up on it. So UK anti-doping. Um, you know, is is really good now. But there was this a German documentary uh, not long ago that showed that in Russia, some of the anti-doping um, workers were kind of in cahoots to cover up some positive tests for the athletes. You know, in return for money kickbacks. So wow. that's a uh, not not a good scene. Wow. So this has been great. Uh, looking forward to reading the new chapter of the paperback edition of your book, which is uh, well, so. What's the new chapter on for our readers? Yes, yeah, so I, I added a chapter to uh, uh, the sports gene about hyper-specialization in sports because there was this building oh. body of evidence showing that even though we all are trying to be make Tiger Woodses out of our children and have them specialize really early to get an advantage in sports, it turns out that we're better off being the Roger Federers who plays a whole bunch of sports and his parents don't even let him specialize. So actually, diversifying earlier leads to better um, skill development later on and, and actually there's starting to be some work about that outside of sports too and so it's, it's counterintuitive but uh, so I added a chapter about that specialization and, and the, the, the burgeoning body of data that suggests that early specialization is actually counterproductive. But then uh, for some of these really ambitious uh, sports governing bodies like China they're measuring kids at such a young age. Yeah no for sure and I think one of the coolest things in the diving was they selected the kids early but then they, I don't know how they decided, but then they would have them do this kind of general athleticism stuff. Oh, really? So part of the specialization issue 
is that you don't you want you want the the developing athlete to learn like a baby, right? Like when a baby learns language, they dive in, they immerse themselves, they kind of fail and struggle, and then later you teach them grammar. So you and select, a lot of cases, select for genes and then give them a well-rounded. Exactly, exactly. So w- what we're doing now a lot of cases is teaching the technical stuff first, and then they never really learn it in the parts of their brain that they need to execute really, really quickly. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting. And then it's, obviously the other thing that's probably just around the corner is some kind of genetic engineering. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right, with CRISPR technology and things like that now. And, and, you know, I write about two genes in the book, the myostatin gene that causes the super baby and the EPOR receptor of this one Olympic champion who produces lots of red blood cells. Oh, so whenever you, have a case, whenever you have a case where you um, have a single gene target like that, that means it's amenable to engineering for doping purposes. Because most, most traits are made up of, lot, you know, are influenced by loads of genes. But whenever there's one gene that can make a big difference, that's a, but, that's a target. But if it's... Genetic engineering, why is that doping? You know, I think that's a good question. I think, so, interestingly, there's a guy named Lee Sweeney who's discovered that some variations in a certain gene cause incredibly explosive muscle growth, a gene called insulin-like growth factor 1 gene. And he gets bombarded with letters from athletes and everything. And he's helping the World Anti-Doping Agency prepare to root out gene doping. Okay. But what he said is... That's because it's not safe. Like pe- some people have died in trials. Oh, right, 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 right. And he says, if it's proven 100% safe, I'm out of anti-doping. You know, forget about it. That's right. th- I'm in it because it might not be safe. He's, he's an interesting guy. I saw one at, at a conference once. Someone said about his work. You know, like I'm, we got we shouldn't treat aging as a disease. You know, I'm fine. I'll be fine being in my wheelchair when I'm 80. And Lee Sweeney said, and I'll be fine pushing your wheelchair when you're 80. So I think we'll look back at all the stuff that. Uh uh, the Oregon Project uh, folks are purportedly trying to do, you know, like with asthma medication and thyroid. That's just basically these are all just primitive, <laughs> primitive techniques that uh, uh, we'll laugh about twenty years from now. Yeah, I mean, in the that that said, I think some of the traditional modes of doping, like there's certain, you know, gene editing you could do now that would cause someone to produce more of certain substances. But using small doses of, sub, of synthetic versions of naturally occurring substances is really, really effective still. Um, so I think it'll be a little while. Yeah. So if there's anything I learned from that accompanying BBC documentary to your piece is that uh, the, the host did EPO, I believe, right? Yeah. The other, the BBC reporter. He, yeah, he's a good he, amateur he, cyclist. He was yeah. just going, I'm fresh. I just rode my bike. Yeah. Uh, you know? You know, I yeah, I should be tired now, but I'm not tired, right? So. Yeah, and he he passed through the biological passport. He, he didn't subject himself to all the testing yeah. that an Olympic athlete would be to, but he passed the biological passport even though he was taking EPO. No, but he could feel it in his body. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his performance has improved a lot. So he, he's, and I think he might, when he went, of course, he went to UK Anti-Doping and said, look, this is my finding for our report. Would you like to comment? And I think they said they might ban him, which is kind of funny, but That's funny. they also should. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. So, thank you again. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You can follow David Epstein on Twitter, at David Epstein. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.